I've seen the light. Let let my eyes adjust. Good morning, beloved. Great to see a few more of you joined us this morning. Someone's excited to open God's word. I hear you, sister, in the back. All right, then. Uh, Open your Bibles, please. Join me in the Gospel of John, chapter 16. We are nearing the end. One more week, I guess, after this one. John 16. We're going to be looking at uh, verses 16 through 24 this morning. But before we uh, read our text this morning, let me just kind of remind you of where we've been. Some new people may be joining us in online this morning. Um, You'll recall this entire section of Scripture, starting all the way back in chapter 13 through 16. This began in the upper room, an upper room located somewhere in Jerusalem, with the Lord Jesus Christ humbly and selflessly washing his disciples' feet. And as the Lord's public ministry has now come to, the clo- come to a close, and with the removal of Judas Iscariot, who is right now plotting his betrayal and, in fact, looking for the opportunity on how it is that he will betray him, We see Jesus now turn his attention to the 11. And he turns his attention in this intimate, personal preparation of discipleship. He's discipling the disciples, his witnesses who will go to the ends of the earth. John 13 says, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come to depart out of this world, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. That word to the end is the word teleos in the Greek. It means uh, he loved them to the max. He loved them to perfection. That is that he loved them perfectly and he loved them eternally. Jesus' love has really been the overarching theme through these last couple of chapters as Jesus really unveils a treasure trove of promises and blessing. It is in this section of John that our Lord reveals the most spiritual and the most personal and the most intimate and the most glorious of fellowships between the Lord Jesus Christ and those whom he now calls his friends. In these amazing chapters, 13, 14, 15, and now 16, the Holy Spirit has uh, pulled back the curtain for us, if you will, as Jesus reveals not just to the 11, but to everyone who would come after them, all of heaven's divine blessings and promises. These are incredible scriptures. But as we saw, as chapter 15 came to a close and as chapter 16 began, the night sky only begins to get darker. Evil has filled men's hearts and 
has already hardened them further. That word love is suddenly replaced by the word hate. And though it is still Thursday night, the Lord knows that Friday is quickly approaching. And in just a few short hours from now, he will be betrayed. He will be arrest, arrested, falsely convicted in several mock trials. He will then be nailed to a wooden cross and he will die. But here in our verses this morning, Jesus and the eleven have now left the upper room. They are now walking through the dark streets of Jerusalem. The Holy Spirit has brought us along with them on this walk as they now come through down through the Kidron Valley, over the brook. The Mount of Olives there on the side on their route to Gethsemane. And here we get just the unique privilege of listening in on this private conversation as the Lord Jesus is giving his final instructions to his disciples for, to prepare them for what in fact lies ahead. And though they have heard the Lord's repeated predictions of both his death and his resurrection, the disciples were not ready when the moment of Christ's passion actually came. Their hearts even now were already overwhelmed with sorrow, Scripture says. In fact, in verse 6, Jesus said, Because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. So as that fateful Thursday evening drew to a close, Jesus once more speaks words of comfort into his disciples as he reassures them that though they're experiencing sorrow in their hearts now, their sorrow will soon turn into unspeakable joy. Here we see Jesus as our sympathetic high priest, the one who carries our cares, who feels our burdens, who seeks our peace, and that's what really flows out of these amazing verses. So let's begin by reading the text um, once through together, and then after uh, we can break it up into a few sections. This is beginning in uh, chapter 16, verse 16. This is the reading of God's holy and living word. Jesus said, a little while, and you will see me no longer. And again, in a little while, and you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, what is this that he says to us? A little while, and you will not see me. And again, in a little while, and you will see me, and because I am going to the Father. So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while. We do not know what he is talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him, so he said to them, is this what you are asking yourselves, what I meant by saying a little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me? Verse 20, truly, truly I say to you, you will weep and lament but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn to joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. 
But when she has delivered the baby, or her baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a child has been born into the world. So also, you have sorrow now, but I will see you again. And your heart will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. In that day, you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive that your joy may be full. Just an amazing promise of hope and even joy in the midst of of their trial as once again our Lord demonstrates his intimate love and concern for his own. In our verses here this morning, the Lord Jesus Christ once again give the disciples a promise. And not just any promise, but a promise of hope and of joy. Joy. Though first Jesus says that in a little while, they would weep and they would lament. And yet the world, Jesus said, will rejoice. But then Jesus says that in yet another little while, everything will drastically change and their sorrow will suddenly be turned into joy. And so we would ask the question, what could possibly make this kind of dramatic transformation to the emotions in their hearts? How could they possibly go from grieving to gladness in such a short period of time? Well, there's only one answer, and it is the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Without the resurrection, the crucifixion would have left them in unspeakable sorrow. Without the resurrection, the crucifixion would have left the disciples without hope. Paul said if there's no resurrection from the dead and Christ had not been raised from the dead, our preaching is useless and so is your faith said to the Corinthians, without the resurrection, your faith is futile, then you are still dead in your sin. And for these disciples, that would mean that everything that they had forsaken was for nothing. After all, these disciples had left everything. Everything. They've left their families. They have left their homes. They have left their children. They have forsaken their fishing nets. They have left their packs boot. Jesus just said, come and follow me. And they did. And for the last three and a half years, these 11 disciples have left everything to do so. But now Jesus says, a little while and you will see me no longer. He says, you will weep and lament. 
you will be sorrowful. But in a little while, your sorrow will turn into joy. It will turn into joy. The resurrection of Jesus Christ will demonstrate that everything the Lord has said about himself was true. It was the truth. And it will prove that the sacrifice that he made upon Calvary's cross will be fully sufficient atonement for their sins and for ours. In fact, little did they know that these days would stand for eternity as a beacon. We celebrate and sing about the cross. We have great joy when we see the symbol of the cross. It is the beacon of the only hope in this world. So as Jesus prepares them for the sorrow that they will experience, they will weep and they will lament at the depths of their loss, and the watching world will rejoice as even in death Jesus will be mocked, spit upon, ridiculed. Yes, there would be sorrow. Yes, there would be tears. Yes, there would be suffering. But sorrow, tears, and suffering would not last forever because God turned sorrow into joy. And he does this not by substitution, but by transformation. Okay? He doesn't substitute your sorrow with joy. Rather, he transforms it. And Jesus talks about this more in this great little passage. So uh, let's walk through this together and see what Jesus is saying to his disciples. And the first thing I want you to notice, number one, the Lord's prediction. The Lord's prediction. Jesus begins this section by making a bold prediction in order to prepare his disciples for what lies ahead. So in verse 16, Jesus begins by saying a little while. And this first little while would prove to be less than 24 hours after he has said this. It is Thursday night, he says, a little while, and you will see me no longer. And why would they see him no longer? Because in just a few short hours from now, while Jesus is praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, Judas will land, uh, lead a, a band of Roman cohorts, and officers from the chief priests, and they will come armed, and they will come and arrest the Lord Jesus Christ, and they will bound him, and they will lead him away, where he will undergo several mock trials, where he will be condemned unto death, and then with soldiers surrounding him, they will strip off the Lord's clothes, they will put onto him a, a scarlet robe in order to mock him, they would then twist together thorns and make them into a crown and press it upon the brow of the Lord's head. Then they knelt down in front of him, mocking him, saying, Oh, hail, king of the Jews. And after spitting on him, scripture says, they took his staff that they had given him and struck the Lord over the head again and again and again until he was then led 
carrying his cross to Golgotha where he would be nailed to a wooden cross and he would be crucified. Before evening came on that day, on Friday, Jesus was then taken down off of the cross and he was then buried in Joseph's tomb. In less than 24 hours from the time that Jesus has speaking these exact words, the shepherd will be struck, the sheep will be scattered, and the disciples' hopes would be all but dashed. But it doesn't end there. Look at what Jesus says at the end of that verse. He says, and again a little while, and you will see me. <laughs> so, in other words, in another little while, in what would be just three days later, you will see me. How quickly the tides can turn. And when Jesus says, you will see me, is there a not amount of certainty in those words? And it refers not only to Sunday, but to the period of 40 days in between from the resurrection until the ascension. In which Jesus made himself known to the disciples on, on multiple occasions. Um, for instance, we see in John chapter 20 when Jesus appears in the upper room. And then several times over that week, as Jesus even comes back because Thomas wasn't with the disciples the first time that the Lord came. And so he came back just for Thomas. And then again in John chapter 21, we will see Jesus appears to the disciples on the Sea of Galilee. And we see these appearances throughout the Gospels and then, of course, in the book of Acts. So as Jesus says, a little while and you will see me no longer, we know that is the crucifixion and the burial. And again, Jesus says, a little while and you will see me, and that is the resurrection. Now, this wasn't the first time that Jesus has predicted his own resurrection. Okay? And, and by the way, who can predict their own resurrection, by the way? other than the Lord over the grave. Back in John chapter 2, verse 19, you'll remember as Jesus um, cleansed the temple, the religious leaders had confronted Jesus, demanding that he show them a, a sign for doing all these things. And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple. And in three days, I will raise it up. And then verse 31, we read, but he was speaking about the temple of his body, his body. Then you'll recall it was in John chapter 10, verse 17, that Jesus said, for this reason, the father loves me because I lay down my life, a clear reference to his death, that I may take it up again. There's a clear reference to his resurrection. Verse 18, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down, and I have the authority to take it up again. I mean, we've seen this just in John's gospel. Jesus has already taught them concerning the resurrection of the Lord. But in even clearer terms, we see it, for instance, in Matthew chapter 12, verse 40. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. 
And again, in Luke's gospel, we see this taught plainly in Luke 18, 31 through 34. It reads, and taking the 12, Jesus said to them, see, we are going up to Jerusalem and everything that was written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished for he will be delivered over to the Gentiles. He will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. But notice what it says there in verse 34. Because they just can't understand this. Jesus has taught it plainly to them. It reads, but they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them. Ah, and they did not grasp what was said. This is kind of interesting. Critics actually see this statement as proof that Jesus never predicted his resurrection. For if he had, uh, they argued the disciples would surely have understood and not been surprised when the Lord's prediction came to pass. Now, this, of course, is ridiculous on several fronts. But first, um, we do, I think, have to have some understanding of Jewish messianic thinking. And we see this in the scriptures. They expected the Messiah to be king. King. A king who would defeat their oppressors and establish the kingdom of God. In fact, um, the story that you are already familiar with that probably um, best portrays this is back in John chapter 6. Remember, remember this crowd in John chapter 6? This is right after Jesus had miraculously fed them through the fishes and the loaves, the, the 5,000, which um, that was just counting men, Matthew tells us. So there was probably more like 10,000 people there. And right after he had fed them and um, right after he had healed them, because he had healed them before they had gone around the other side of the Galilee, Verse 14 there in chapter 6 tells us, therefore, therefore because Jesus had healed them and therefore because Jesus had miraculously fed them the fishes and the loaves, when the people saw the sign, they saw it, they experienced the sign, they ate the sign, they were healed, which Jesus had performed. They said, truly, this is the prophet who is to come into the world. Now, when we went through this uh, many months ago, the prophet refers back to Deuteronomy 18.15, which is a messianic prediction. But these people were not were looking to uh, fill their spiritual needs. They were looking to fill their physical needs, i.e. their bellies. And so Jesus, perceiving that they were intending to come and take him by force, they were going to kidnap the Lord Jesus Christ to make him what? King. King. What did Jesus do? He withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone. Um, it's why Judas got out of Dodge so quickly. As soon as he realized Jesus came the first time uh, to be the sacrificial lamb and not the lion, he sold Jesus down the river for 30 pieces of silver. The idea of a crucified Messiah just did not fit most Jewish expectations of who he was supposed to be. So scripture says they did not grasp what was said. 
So at times, yes, Jesus uh, spoke uh, in parables. Um, sometimes certain things were somewhat veiled, but there's no question he predicted and taught plainly his death and resurrection. We see in scripture multiple times. In fact, I'll read one more before we move on in Mark chapter 9, verse 31. For he, Jesus, was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered in the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. So, I'm sorry, disciples. We're, we're trying to work with you. That leads us to the next section, which is the disciples' confusion. They're just confused. They're confused, and we see this next. And, and I think there's a sense in which we, we too can understand uh, confusion that uh, maybe they suffer with. Let's look and unpack this just for a moment and see if there's anything relatable for us that we can say in our lives. Yeah, I, I can maybe understand some of this. So some of the disciples said to one another, what is this he says to us? A little while and <laughs> you will not see me. And again, a little while you will see me. And because I'm going to the Father, I should have just titled the sermon a little while and a, a little while. Uh, now, we haven't even heard from the disciples since Judas, not Iscariot's question all the way back in chapter 14. And by this point, the disciples are confused. Is he coming? Is he going? If he was leaving in order to establish the messianic kingdom, then why leave at all? But on the other hand, if he was not establishing his kingdom at this point, then why would he come back? It, it wasn't registering. Is he coming? Is he going? And I think that besides their sorrow, and besides obviously the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, and besides their messianic anticipation, all of which we previously talked about in the last few weeks, something else that was missing, and this was vital to have a very clear understanding of what Jesus was teaching them. And that was the conception of Jesus' death for sinners and his resurrection for justification. And, and what that meant, the gospel. And, and so Jesus just keeps hammering the snail away into the board until it is flushed. And I think for us, we too can understand some of their confusion in this sense. God's will for us often has many unexpected turns in the road. Does it not? We think that we have it all sorted out and we're going into a certain direction. We've got the whole thing mapped out and we know just how this whole thing is going to work out. Oh, we make our plans daily, weekly, monthly, yearly, five-year plan, 10-year plan, and we have everything all lined up in a row, and then one week later, God reshuffles the deck. <laughs> and isn't that like him? He redirects our path. And now we're going in a totally different direction, and that's what our omniscient God does, because God always knows best for his children. Romans 12, 2 says, the will of God, which is good and acceptable and perfect. Though many times for us, it can be confusing and perplexing, but the Lord has it totally under control. 
Proverbs 19.21 says, Many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. <laughs> I mean, God's ways are always above our ways. Isaiah 55, 8 through 9, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than your earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. So the disciples are confused. Verse 18, they're confusion. They're still stumbling around. So they, the disciples, were saying, What does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he is talking about. They had a difficult time just coming to grips with the reality the Lord was about to die. The fact that he was going away and coming back just left them utterly bewildered. What does he mean by a little while? We do not know. Verse 19, Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him. So he said to them, I love this. Is this what you are asking yourselves? What I meant by saying a little while and you will not see me. And again, a little while and you will see me. Jesus, of course, knew that they had wished to question him. Jesus reads their minds like it was an open book. Jesus always knows what we're thinking. Hebrews 4, verse 13 says, There is nothing in all of creation that is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must all give an account. And so Jesus, knowing all that they wanted to question him seeks both to alleviate their confusion and to comfort their hearts. And we see Jesus here takes the initiative by answering their unasked questions, okay? The Lord's heart is, is unsurprising reminiscent of God's word through the prophet Isaiah. Let me just share quickly, Isaiah 65, 24 See if the Lord's words match up with God's words because he is God. It will also come to pass that before they call, I will answer. And while they are speaking, I will hear. Okay. And so they can't quite untie this knot. It remains somewhat of a riddle to them. So in verse 20, Jesus unloosens the knot a little bit more. That brings us to our third section and the illustrative parable. Jesus begins verse 20 with the familiar, truly, truly, I say to you. Sorry, I included verse 19 there. There's 20. Truly, truly, I say to you. This word truly in the original language is amen, amen. Came to be used as an adverb by which something is asserted or, or it's confirmed. We, we all confirmed when we pray together. We jointly say, amen, amen. Something, uh, sometimes it's also translated verily, verily, uh, truly, truly, most assurably. And whenever Jesus says this, this underscores the importance, okay, of what the Lord is about to say to his disciples. Uh, by Jesus saying truly, truly, he's in effect saying, if you hear anything that I say, you need to listen to this. So I trust your antennas are up. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament. There's divine certainty about this. You will weep. And, and we should never say that there's never a time in a believer's life that they are not to weep and um, to lament. Even Jesus 
wept in John chapter 11. We are to weep with those who are weeping and lament with those who are lamenting. And this is a proper expression given the circumstances. Their hearts were already troubled. Okay, remember back in John 4:21, Jesus said, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. The whole reason he said that is he knew that their hearts were already troubled because he had just said, where I'm going, you cannot come. But this will now take their troubled hearts to a whole new level. You will weep over my death upon the cross and lament. But the world, they'll rejoice. They'll How can this be? The world will rejoice while they are weeping? And sadly, this is what we see during the Lord's death. The apostate Jewish leaders and the nation was so bitterly and satanically opposed to the Lord Jesus Christ while he was alive that they rejoiced over his death. They all but chanted, crucify him. Matthew 27, verse 39 through 44 says, those who passed by hurled insults against him, at him, shaking their heads as they walked by and saying, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Come down from that cross if you are the son of God. In the same way, the chief priests, the teachers of the laws, and the elders mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he cannot save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I am the son of God. In the same way, the robbers who were crucified with him also heaped insults upon him. We as believers of the Lord Jesus Christ see the world around us in a totally differently than what the world sees. And we need to be very careful that we not become like the world and see the world like how the world sees the world. But that we always weep over that which the world rejoices over. And that we always rejoice over that which the world weeps. And we see that loud and clear here in these verses. And I trust that there will always be a, a firewall in your heart between the kingdom of God and the kingdoms of this world. You don't turn the church into the world to reach them for Christ. You point them to Christ and they run from the world. And if the church does not weep over what the world rejoices, something has gone terribly wrong. So in verse 20, Jesus says, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. But it doesn't end there. Christ's enemies' joy over his death would be short-lived. Notice, you will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. You see? The transformation. Jesus says, your sorrow will turn into joy. Now, the Lord was not saying that the event causing their sorrow, the cross, would then be replaced by some other event, and that's what it is that would make them joyful. 
No, rather that that same event, the crucifixion that is causing their sorrow, would be the cause for their joy. We see now Christ on the cross and his blood for the atonement for our sins. And we praise him for the cross. We celebrate the cross. The dark shadows of sorrow and grief cast by the cross, fled by the brilliant, glorious light of the resurrection, that would be coming that Sunday morning. And, And that light will also cause the disciples to view the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ in its proper context, making it an unending source of joy for them all. Praise God. Just turn with me quickly so you can see this fulfillment yourself. It's in John chapter 20, verse uh, 19. Maybe I didn't get it. Oh, back. (laughs) Oh, that's why I was mixing it up. (laughs) I just want you to see for yourself. This is the fulfillment of what Jesus said. On the evening of that first day of the week, Sunday, the Lord's Day, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for the fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and he said, Peace be with you. Because did they not desperately need the peace that Jesus had promised them? Verse 20 says, After he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side, and the disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. You see, their weeping and their lamenting and their grief and their heartache was immediately turned into joy. And what Jesus did for his disciples, he does for you and me as well. I also want to just share quickly Paul's view on the cross. I'll read you. It's Galatians 6, verse 14. As Paul also rejoiced, he said, May it never be that I would boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. The, the, the cross is foundational to all of our joy because it is the basis of our redemption. The principle is simply this. God brings joy to our lives, not by substitution, but by transformation. And we see that in the cross, and we see that in the resurrection, and we experience it through the work of the indwelling Holy Spirit. Now, in in verses 21 and, and 22, Jesus begins to illustrate this transformation of sorrow turning into joy with somewhat of a parable. In verse 21, we see the illustration, and then in verse 22 will be the application. So notice first the illustration there in verse 21. Jesus says, whenever a woman is in labor, she has pain because her hour has come. And we know this goes all the way back to the curse God pronounced on Eve on the aftermath of the fall from Genesis 3. But Jesus says, when she gives birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish 
How quickly the tables turn, mothers, as you go from excruciating pain to exhilarating joy. She goes from the depths of, of agony to the heights of ecstasy, did you not, mother? Her pain is now behind her as it is far overshadowed by the happiness that she now feels holding her little child in her hands. And Jesus says she, verse 21, no longer remembers the anguish because of the joy that her child has been born into the world. All of that anguish of the, the birth pains, uh, uh, carrying the child uh, during the labor soon now fades away as the mother closely holds that baby to her bosom and she has a joy that is beyond expression. Mothers in the house? <laughs> That's why I had a little difficulty with this next statement. In the same way, the disciples would experience terrible grief in the short term. We have to remember that in just a few short hours, they will see the Lord be arrested. He will be taken from them. He will be crucified. He will be buried all in the next 24 hours. And it will be like a stake that has been driven through their hearts. And they will be filled with unspeakable grief and fear. And that was all a part of the plan of God for their life. Not the fear, but this grief specifically. It was all part of their emotional bonding to the cross. That this would not be some light thing. This would not be some kind of a light message that they would just kind of go around and, and preach and, and repeat. They will have felt the loss and the agony and the payment of the cross. That very message they would take because it would be so deep driven down into their hearts. And that message is what they would go out and preach that they have wept over the cross, that they have lamented over the cross. And so Jesus then says in verse 22, so also you have sorrow now. Look what Jesus says next. But I will see you again. <laughs> Friday night might look dark, Peter. Friday night might look the end, John. Friday night, all hope might be gone, James. But Sunday is coming. Sunday is coming, and the Lord continues, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. No one will take your joy from you. No enemy of the cross, no persecuting government, no agents of Satan, no false religious teachers. And I'll tell you why the world could not take it away is because it is only that the Lord who gives this joy. And that joy that it gives is a permanent joy. Yes, there are times in the midst of trials and tribulations in our life that there will be a lessening it is a fallen world and there will be seasons and 
situations that we will mourn over. Nevertheless, the joy of the Lord never leaves us even in our darkest hour. It, it is supernatural. It is transcendent joy. It is greater than all of our circumstances and difficulties that we will ever face. In the very next chapter of John, Jesus will enter into the high priestly prayer and we know that all of Jesus' prayers were heard and they were answered. And in John 17, verse 13, Jesus prayed not only for the 11, but we see down in a few verses after, but for all who would believe in him through their word, through the teaching and the preaching of the New Testament. But in verse 13, Jesus prayed this to the Father, I am coming to you now. But I say these things while I'm still in the world so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. No, not just a little bit of joy, but the full measure within them. And this joy would become one of the distinguishing marks of a spirit-filled believer, a follower who was bought and purchased with the blood of Jesus Christ, at the cross. One of the distinguishing marks of someone who's been born again by the Spirit of God from above is that there is a joy in their life even in the midst of worldly trials. And I want us just to look ahead just for a moment and turn to Acts chapter 5, verse 40. We looked at this just a few weeks ago, but this is so powerful that I want you to see it again and this joy is all through the book of Acts. Despite the persecution that they faced, the disciples have been arrested. They have been beaten, persecuted. Verse 40, and when they, the council, had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day, the next day, every day, in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that Jesus was the Christ. What a supernatural joy that the Lord gives to his disciples. And even in the midst of the most harrowing pain, excruciating adversities that they have gone through. Even when they had been flogged and beaten, they nevertheless had a joy because they considered themselves so unworthy to even be identified with the Lord Jesus Christ, to suffer for the name. And can you not relate, mom and dad, that even in the darkest hours of trials, God has brought you through supernaturally by the joy of Christ? If you have been sealed with the Holy Spirit, you are filled with joy. Galatians 5.22 says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy. It's number two in the list. Romans 14 verse 17 says, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. In Romans 15.13, Paul writes his Benediction for those who are Roman. He says, may the God of hope fill you with all joy 
and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. Hope, the living hope. You see, the Lord gives to his children the gift and the spirit of joy. So even in the midst of challenges, heartaches, and difficulties, because he lives in our hearts and because he is seated at the right hand of the Father, and because he hears our prayers and he is our high priest, because he represents us before the Father. James 1, 2 says, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance or perseverance, and let endurance, perseverance have its perfect result, so it may be perfect and complete, not lacking anything. So, Thanks for hanging in there. We'll wrap this up. Last two verses. The blessed promise. This is our fourth heading. The blessed promise. And, and Jesus unloads yet another incredible promise. As he now concludes this section by addressing the subject of prayer. And this is so appropriate given to what is to come. Verse 23. In that day. That, that's the same as in a little while. <laughs> in that day is referring to when they will see the Lord again. In that day, you will ask nothing of me. You will not question me about me. Why is that? Well, because for that 40-day interim period from the resurrection to the ascension, Jesus will instruct them yet further in matters of the kingdom of God. And they will more fully understand all that God has for them. They'll, they'll be like those two disciples we read about on the road to Emmaus last week in Luke 24. As Jesus, it says, beginning with Moses and all the way through the prophets, opens their hearts explaining to them everything that was written concerning him. And so Jesus appears to them and starts opening up the scriptures and having Bible study with his disciples. And then he gives them this blessed promise. Jesus says, truly, here we go again, truly I say to you, we feel the weight of this already. These are not throwaway words. These will be anchors for these men. Whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Now, whatever you ask needs qualification as to what follows, whatever you ask, whatever, your Lamborghini that you wanted, whatever, whatever you ask in my name, please understand in my name. It's not something that we just toss at the end of our prayers. In my name means everything that I've brought before your throne is to exalt the name of Christ. It is to evangelize the world in the name of Christ. John 4, 13 said, Jesus said, whatever you ask in my name, that will I do so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. We pray to bring glory to his name. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so Jesus says, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give to you. This is the blessed promise our Lord gives. Verse 24, until now you have asked nothing in my name. 
Why is that? Because up to this point, Jesus has been right there with them and he has supplied them everything that they have needed. But now he is going to the Father. So how will he continue to meet all their needs? He, he, sa he says it. Ask and you will receive. <laughs> Verse 24. I will be seated at the right hand of the Father. I will send the Holy Spirit to you. And when you pray... To magnify me, I will bring these to the Father. He will answer that prayer just as if I was standing next to you because I will be in you. How extraordinary of a verse is this? You will ask and you will receive. And what will be the result of it? End of verse 24. That your joy may be full. We could put it this way. That the greatest joy is to know the Lord your God. It is to have his peace. And it is to be used by him to be his vessel in order for others to come to know him. Our joy is made full when we pray to the Father in the name of the Son, in the power of the Holy Spirit. And as the Holy Spirit comes upon a man or a woman and they are transformed by the renewing work of the Spirit... And they come to love God and to love the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And that he alone then receives all of the glory. When we pray to the Father and we ask what we need to carry out his work. What joy there is for us to see our prayers answered. Is it not? No wonder he says that your joy may be made full have you experienced that joy it's been 2,000 years 2,000 years since the Lord walked out of that tomb and yet his empty tomb continues to turn our sorrow into joy is that not power and whatever that trial is that maybe is causing sorrow in your heart today, right now, whatever adversary has come up against you, be encouraged, beloved. Jesus has been raised from the dead. Be encouraged, beloved, to know that Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father and that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given over to him and that he rules and reigns right now. Be encouraged, to know that he transforms our most painful days of adversity into glorious mountaintops of victory. And that is what he delights to do in the hearts and circumstances of his children. I'll close quickly. Psalm 30, verse 5. Psalm of David, he says, Weeping may last for a night, but a shout of joy comes in the morning. Verse 11, he says, you have turned my mourning into dancing. That's the transformation our God does. Weeping may be last night, but in the morning, your mercies are new every day. Great is thy faithfulness. If you need comfort this morning, if you are going through a situation, a time, or a trial, 
we do want to pray with you. If you don't want to come down right after service up front here, we would love to pray with you afterwards or whenever that time is good for you. Um, please stand and we'll sing one more Lord, uh, song to praise our Lord. Thanks for hanging in with us.